Welcome to Canada Crush. I'm your host, Dave Morris. Each episode, we'll talk to great Canadians in business, sports, the arts, and elsewhere to discover and uncover their routines, their habits, and the tool set they use to prepare themselves for success at the highest level. Come on this journey with me as we find out what makes Canada and its people so remarkable. That 10 minutes a day daily training plus the one-hour sessions, people were able to increase their focus by 15%, their internal and external awareness by 7%, their emotional exhaustion reduced by 10%, their job satisfaction, and this was the real cool thing, their job satisfaction increased by 6%. He said, what I got from this program was I got one second. And at first we kind of thought, oh, that's really bad. I mean, you were a busy guy and you had, you know, you spent 10 minutes a day and an hour every week and you only got one second. But he said, and it was so awesome, he said he got one second of freedom in his mind to as opposed to just reacting when all of these stimulus came in, he was able to pause just for that moment to be able to make conscious choices. That's the voice of Jacqueline Carter, today's guest on Canada Crush. As you're about to hear, Jacqueline is a world-renowned expert on mindfulness, and through her work as a partner in the Potential Project organization, Jacqueline and her colleagues have helped pioneer mindfulness training into many of the world's top organizations. This interview is packed with tips, facts, and the science behind the astonishing effectiveness of mindfulness in our everyday living. I hope you enjoy. Here's the interview. Jacqueline Carver, I am so pleased that you've been able to join us today on Canada Crush. Welcome. Thank you very much. Mindfulness. We're going to dig into the topic today. You've collaborated on a book on the subject, One Second Ahead. You run a successful international business called Potential Project that incorporates mindfulness training into corporate world. You're busy. (laughs) However, we need to start with the obvious question. Please help for people listening define what mindfulness training is. Well, I'll start out with what mindfulness is, and then I can talk secondly about the training. So I think for me, mindfulness is basically understanding the nature of your own mind, which I can't imagine anything more important. Uh, And then secondly, learning how to try to master it. And so the training that you do is basically looking at your mind as a muscle and training it in ways so that you can, one, understand it better, and secondly, master it in ways that will be beneficial to you. I guess the follow-up to that would be why. Why do people need, what's the problem that mindfulness is, is solving? Well, I think because in my own experience, in my own journey with mindfulness, is that we have a lot of illusions about the mind. One of our most basic illusions is we actually think we're in control of our minds, and we're not. And I can do a really, really simple exercise if you want to try it. Please. Okay. I won't look at my notes. Yeah, don't look at your notes. Yeah. So a very simple exercise is that I would like to invite you to have one thought and only one thought. So you pick a thought. You can pick anything you like. I won't ask you to share it on the show. And you can think about only that one thought for 45 seconds. Ready, set, Now, this might not be very mindful of me, but I'm not going to let you hang around for 45 seconds of dead air. So 
Suffice to say, I did it, but let me jump ahead to the 45 second mark, and then you can hear what my reaction was. Stop. How'd that go? <laughs> I probably wandered at the 10 second mark. <laughs> Do you want to know my thought? Um, absolutely. Skiing. Very good. And uh, at the 10 second mark, what happened? I started wondering when 45 seconds exactly, was going to be up. Exactly. Well, and what's really interesting is, of course, as you mentioned, we work in corporations. And when we do this exercise, everybody has the same experience because our mind naturally wanders. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really quite interesting because from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that our mind would wander. If you think about in cave times when the brain was beginning to form, the guy or gal that could sit and just focus on the fire, they got eaten. They're actually, we're not, they're not our our relatives. Our relatives are the ones that we're constantly saying there's a rustle in the bushes. I think there's something wrong and we don't have enough food and we've got to go there and we've got to do this. So our brains actually developed to have attention deficit disorder, which was an evolutionary advantage. And now in a workplace where we need to sit and we need to focus and we need to pay attention, we don't actually have the brains that are capable of really doing the kinds of exercise that make us effective at work. And it's like that simple exercise. And it's so funny because when I do that exercise with in our corporate work, you know, people say, first thing they say is there was no way that was 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so usually I take out my timer and I have to prove it to people. But the second thing is it's just such a simple and interesting insight into how difficult it is to stay focused on an object of your choice. And in your example, I mean, you picked skiing, you know, something that I'm assuming that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. And the next question that we ask, again, in a work environment is, do you like everything you have to focus on at work? So if it's that difficult to focus for 45 seconds, which is less than a minute, on something you enjoy how difficult is it for us to focus on things that we maybe don't enjoy as much, which, of course, is many aspects of our work life. So the exercise you did with me was right at the beginning. The work that you do with some of the corporations, is that one of the first exercises you do? And it, is and is the reason, f- maybe explain the reason for that, because yeah. I assume you come back to that 45 seconds at a future time. Very much, because the first, and it's it's basically to your question of why. So the first insight is that our mind actually wanders. And what researchers have shown is that basically 46.9% of the time, our mind is wandering. So, and the example, it's really important. It means, you know, you're, you're here with me right now, but perhaps, you know, your mind is wandering to, you know, your dinner plans, or maybe it is to what question you're going to ask next. So you're not totally paying attention. And that's okay because we don't want to beat ourselves up for it because that's actually just how our mind naturally works. So the first port of call of mindfulness is just recognizing we aren't always in as much control as we think we are. And that's a really important insight because that's where the training kicks in. We can actually train our mind to be able to be more intentional about paying attention to an object of our choice. But it's not easy. So that's that's when you asked about how we do it in corporations. What we talk about is the environments that we work in right now are filled with distractions. So we already have a wandering mind and we bring that wandering mind into environments that are filled with 
pressures and being always on and information and distractions. And it does, it, it makes it difficult for us to be as effective as we can be. That's in what the I was, my next question yeah. is, what's the problem? Essentially, you're not as effective as you should be. You're not be as effective. Interesting. Well, and you look, and, the, and a simple, simple example would be, you know, for anybody listening, you know, think of the last meeting that you were at, you know, in a workplace. And if you really look around and you're actually just paying attention to not only your own mind, but others, most of the time, not everybody is 100% present. So if not everybody is, full, I mean, physically they're there, but mentally, who knows? And if we're not fully present in a meeting, how effective are we? And so when we work with organizations, one of the things we say is even just 5% increase in focus could actually not only enhance your effectiveness when you're meetings, but you can actually reduce the time it takes. Because if everybody was actually paying attention in a meeting, your meeting will be better and shorter. Mm-hmm. And the other insight into the nature of the mind is that we can also better, if our mind is cluttered, we don't have the same capacity for creativity. It's, it's just basically like a water glass that's too full. You just don't have enough space to be able to think outside the box. So other aspects of, okay, if I know that my mind is cluttered right now, how can I clear it to be able to have a more expansive mind if I want to have creative ideas? There was something I read in the book which I thought was fascinating. It was at the early part. It was called um, addiction. How did, what was it termed? Action, action. Action addiction. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Essentially, if you're on action all the time, I think what I'm hearing is you don't allow the space for the creativity. Well, not only that, absolutely. The other aspect of action addiction is that we get addicted to activity, but there is a difference between activity and productivity. So, for example, and this would be another just reflection that we would do, and again, people listening can think about this. Have you ever had a day where you spent the entire day and you were very busy, but you really didn't get anything done that was really that important? And a great example of that is our inboxes. Mm -hmm. We can get sucked into the tyranny of the inbox, and it can take hours, and we're really not – I mean, of course, you know, the inbox, there's lots of things that are important in there. But is it really the best use of our time? You know, did we miss other things that we could have spent our time on? And the way the brain works, and again, this is all why, to me, it's so important for us to understand the way the brain works, is the brain gives us a dopamine kick when we do something. So if I answer an email, it'll say, good job, Jacqueline. You answered an email. It'll give me a little dopamine kick. It also, because maybe I feel like I'm important, somebody sent me an email, so there's a sense of gratification. And if I answer another one, it could give me another dopamine kick. So it's like any other addiction. We think we're being productive because we're busy. But the idea of mindfulness is to be able to say, wait a minute, is, is this really the best use of my time right now? And maybe it is, but being able to make sure that we're not just driven based on action addiction, we're actually doing things that are the most productive use of our time. When you introduce action addiction for the first time into the corporate uh, work that you do, yes. do the lights go off? What's the, what's the reaction? I think that most people, when they reflect on it, and again, I mean, we work, I mean, we work with all levels of organization, you know, senior leaders, all the way down to frontline employees. I think particularly with a lot of our work with leaders, most of them are pretty efficient and effective. I mean, actually, probably most of the people that we work with are very efficient and effective. But especially with the senior leaders, they wouldn't be in those jobs if they weren't pretty good at managing their time. So oftentimes, it is 
but they know they're not as effective as they could be. They know that there are times when they get caught up in just doing things as opposed to doing the most important things. And so for us, oftentimes, it'll be, you know, what are the one or two things that you can change that'll really help you better use your precious mental resources? And a simple tip that's just incredible and very important from a brain science perspective is don't do emails in the morning. And the reason is because from a brain science perspective, we know that if you've had a good night's sleep, your mind hopefully is freshest and clearest in the morning. And if the first thing you do is dive into your inbox, it basically is creating mental clutter because the inbox is a whole range of mm -hmm. different things going off in many different directions. And so ideally, the first couple hours of the day should be when you're solving you know, the biggest, toughest problems. And most of us, the first thing we do when we wake up is open up, you know, our devices and check our inbox. Yeah. And it's and that's just not a good use of our precious mental resources. So it's even simple tips, tips like that. Or another one, and not to pick on email, but it's a great one to use, is, you know, try a day where you turn off all notifications and just simply notice what would a day be like just as an experiment where you are not distracted and you do your you you choose specific time that you're going to manage your inbox but you're not distracted by incoming messages and how does that change your peace of mind how does that change your effectiveness how does that change how much clutter you have how creative you are and maybe even change how connected you are to other human beings so these are all when we work with people and we start to say let's start to really unpack the nature of our thoughts and how we're managing our mind there's really simple and easy ways to be able to enhance effectiveness. The work, again, that you're doing corporately, how big are the groups that you're typically with? It, uh, it'll range. Typically, when we work, um, we can generally work with groups up to 30. I mean, we do large group interventions, so we'll work with, uh, we'll do large presentations. But typically, our standard program, which has been researched by third-party evaluators, looks at a series of sessions, one-hour sessions, over a series of eight to ten weeks. And the idea being is that really, I mean, and that's why I said it is a, it is a mental training. It is going to the gym for the brain mm -hmm. to strengthen your mental muscle. And you can't do that in one shot. So the idea is to come back each week. So short, sharp interventions where you come in, you learn a little bit about the nature of your own mind. You do some mindfulness training. And then you talk about how to apply it in a way that's really practical and relevant in your specific work environment. And then you try that out and we come back the next week and we say, how did it go? We do another insight. Let's go another journey into the nature of our own mind. And then another practical application. And through the journey of those of those eight to ten weeks, we've just seen tremendous, tremendous outcomes. I'm going to get to some of the yeah. results. But it's funny. When you first introduced the idea, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, what if I was one of those 20? Yeah. And suddenly you say, turn the email off for a yeah. particular date. Yeah. Is everybody looking around the room at each other going, there's no friggin' way exactly. this is going to happen? Well, I'll share a great story of that. So one of our clients is Google. And I mean... It was, um, it was actually, it was myself that was leading the program at Google. And when we talked about that exact example of, and it's all just what if. I mean, this is really inviting curiosity, which is, again, great for us as adults. But what would it be like? And they all looked at me like I had three heads. Like it was like, 
we're Google. Like, we live by our technology. We are always on by choice. And yeah. there is no way that we are going to be disconnected from our devices. And I said, well, just maybe even just for one meeting. Like, like let's not go for a day. That, that's too much. Try one meeting where you decided to all put your devices at the door. And just as an experiment, see the difference in your brain. Because what the science says is that right now, while we're sitting here, if our devices were on, that it would distract us. That, that they've shown that it actually affects our nervous system. Yeah. If there's a possibility that something is going to beep or buzz or vibrate, that there is a, actually a low level of response, alert response in our nervous system that distracts us from being more fully present. And so it's, it's science. I'm getting sweaty palms because I could be the perfect <laughs> avatar for you. I have the phone that has the red light on it when, when something comes in. Yep. And when I'm looking at it, 30 or 40 times over a five-minute period. And if the red light isn't on, I'll go and check to see whether it's exactly. whether it's working or not. So exactly. I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but I could be the classic. But, but actually, just so you know, though, and I think what's so much fun about this, this the, the work that we do, is that we all do things like that. Yeah. And what we notice is that just, you know, because, again, because we don't necessarily understand the impact that it's having on our brains, we think we're being efficient and effective, but in a lot of ways, and again, it's so it's, it's an opportunity to reflect on how are you using your mind. Is the Google one a good one we should walk through, or is there another example of a, of a business? Because what I'd love to talk about is yeah. what happens, not second, third, fourth, et cetera, but a little bit of the progression. Do we want to walk through the Google? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you've introduced them to this concept. Yes. People are nervous and sweaty palms like me, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. What other exercises are you providing for them when they go away from that one-hour session yes. that are really becoming effective uh, for them? The foundation and the core of the program is the actual mindfulness training itself. So the progression from the 45-second exercise that I did with you is to say, okay, so now you've learned that it's actually, it's kind of tough to manage our minds. Our minds are wandering all the time. So the first entry into what we call the mental gym is actually 10 minutes of daily mindfulness training. And it's a very simple exercise. We actually call it ABCD because we want it to be something so simple mm -hmm. that you will remember it. Okay, let's go with A. Okay, so A, and we can just walk it through and then we can just do a few minutes just sure. of the mindfulness training itself. So the A is for anatomy. So the first thing that you want to do as you go into the mental gym is you want to make sure that you're relaxed. And this is critically important because the majority of us, the majority of us carry an incredible amount of unnecessary tension, not mm -hmm. only in our bodies, but actually in our minds. So the first thing is just make sure you're sitting comfortably. You want to be grounded. You want to be balanced because we don't want our body to get in the way of us being able to focus and be more present. The next step, so that's the A, the B is for the breath. Mm -hmm. So if we want to train our attentional muscle so that we can be focused on an object of our choice, we need to have an object. So we pick the breath because the breath is always with us. And so whether we're going into a meeting or whether we're trying to get a good night's sleep, the breath is always there. So we can use it as the object of our focus. And the idea is it's not a breathing exercise. So it's not about breathing deep or breathing shallow or anything. It's simply about observing the experience of the breath coming in and the breath going out. Okay. And as weird as that sounds, that's all there is to it. Get comfortable. Get sort of focused. That's it. Okay. You got On it. On breathing. On okay. breathing. A, B. 
The C is for counting. So in order for us to make sure that we're not just doing an exercise in mind wandering, Mm. we need to be able to have a measuring stick to see whether we're still paying attention. So the counting, what we do is we breathe in, we breathe out, we count one. We breathe in, we breathe out, we count two. And we go up to 10. And when we get to 10, it gets really exciting because then we start counting backwards. If you get that high, by the way, you count at 10, then you start counting backwards back down to one. And again, it's simple. You just continue in cycles. And what naturally happens, and so the D is for distractions, because our mind naturally wanders, you might get to three and all of a sudden you have thoughts about why am I doing this or thoughts about lunch or thoughts about something else. And the cool thing is about the training is that's not fail. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a moment to celebrate because when you recognize that you are distracted, that is mindfulness. Is there a correlation between, so you get to C, you get to D, which is distraction. Yeah. Is there a state of creativity that enters in at that particular point in time? Well, it is actually interesting because creativity, and we actually have specific training on creativity. So creativity can come from a wandering mind, but the reality is that if you don't have the attentional a muscle to be able to, to be aware when you've had a creative idea, it's useless to you. Okay. So there's definitely exercise that, that you want to do to allow your mind to relax, ease up the focus, and open up the awareness. But separate from the ABCD. But separate from the ABCD. <sighs> the next course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is actually a progression. So the, there's two different things that we train. The first series of exercise is just training us to stay focused on the breath, recognize when we get distracted, flex our attentional muscle, and come back to the breath. And we start counting from one again. The second level of training is actually training ourselves, which is exactly where you go with creativity. And this is wickedly cool training, I think. Of course, I'm passionate about it, you can tell. But training ourselves to be able to be aware of our experiences, aware of our thoughts, without getting engaged in them. So it's it's basically being able to be an observer of your own mental experiences. And if you can do that, that is actually the space where creative insights can come in. The book's called One Second Ahead. Yes. Does that tie into exactly what you just said? The One Second Ahead specifically is uh, is a story, which I'm, I'm happy to share. Please. It's about um, a guy that we worked with, a busy guy, busy life, a senior partner in a financial services firm in Europe. And he came to us and he said, you know, I've got so many demands on my life, you know, my clients, my colleagues, my team. Um, and then I go home and he even said, you know, and then I've got my wife, my kids, and even my dog wants my attention. Everybody is always pulling on me. And I feel a little bit like I'm out of control in my own life. And even though it was very successful and by all external views, seemed like he had it all. He was just feeling like he was just constantly being at the whim of everybody else's demands. And he said, can you help? And we said, well, we'll give it a try. And so we walked him through the same uh, 10-session program, one hour each week. This was done one-on-one as opposed to the work that we do in corporations, which is with the groups. And 10 minutes of the ABCD progressing through the different stages of the training, 10 minutes of daily training a day. 10 was it. 10 was it. Exactly. 10 minutes a day. And from a research perspective, they've shown that 10 minutes of ABCD a day can rewire the brain in a way. And then I'll share with you what the end of the story. So after 10 weeks, 
we came to him and we said, you know, Jacob, like, what did you get? Like, how did it go? And he said, he said, what I got from this program was I got one second. And at first we kind of thought, oh, that's really bad. I mean, you were a busy guy and you had, you know, you spent 10 minutes a day and an hour every week and you only got one second. But he said, and it was so awesome. He said he got one second of freedom in his mind to, as opposed to just reacting when all of these stimulus came yeah. in, he was able to pause just for that moment to be able to make conscious choices about how he was going to respond. And he felt that was freedom for him. So it just changed his life. So the example of, you know, just because the text comes in doesn't actually mean you need to respond to it because maybe being here with the person who's in front of you is actually the most important thing that you should be doing. And just that that shift was what 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 really for him changed his life. You know, as you're talking about it, there's a sports analogy that's almost coming into my head. I don't know if you've worked with sports people, but professional athletes, there always is I think particularly in hockey that great hockey players can see the ice yes. differently yeah. than mediocre hockey players. And it's almost that one second ahead. They know where the puck is going. They can see so it's kind of giving yourself that opportunity. Yes. So have you worked with sports people? I'm just curious. Yeah, whether- yeah. Um, we um, we have not. So our focus is very much in the corporate space. But it makes sense, does it? The, the- it makes incredible sense. Yeah. And one of the things, certainly, we use a ton of sports analogies. But like, and and there are many examples. I was actually at a, a conference in Australia, and I was had the opportunity to be on stage, shared a stage with a, a coach who's brought mindfulness in for one of the the footy teams, mm-hmm. and it was. Both of us were just so interested to compare what he's doing with his guys on the field. Yes. And I would talk about what I'm doing with the work in the corporate space and how it really is about recognizing that our minds are wandering and that's not helpful to us and that choosing where we want to place our focus. So another simple example of that is that, you know, and again, I'm sure you can relate, you know, have you ever, you know, been in a conversation, been in a meeting and you said something you regret? All the time. Okay, just wanted to check that you're human. That's good. Um, Probably a few things already today. Yeah, I'm sure not. But uh, but what's interesting is the way the mind works is we ruminate, right? Like we ruminate. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Yeah. And you know, and you apologized. Like you did everything that you could do, but your mind won't let it go. Right? Negativity, and we know this from a scientific perspective. Negativity sticks in the brain. So another perfect example of that is that if I gave you a compliment, Dave, you look really nice today, you would say, oh, thanks. And it would last maybe, if I was lucky, two minutes. But if I said, Dave, you know. Boy, you look tired. You look, you yeah. look terrible. That would stick. Yeah. So negativity sticks in the brain. And so what happens is the example of the meeting or in a sports analogy, if I screwed up on a play, mm-hmm. if that stays with me and there's, right, I... I'm going to mess the next play because I'm in the last play beating myself up and it's no help. It's not helpful to me. And so in, in business and in sports, we do that all the time and the training. So one of the key things in the training is if you can manage your own thoughts, you can say, and it's not easy. And I think this is why the training is so powerful. It is not easy to let go of a negative thought, but it's possible and I think that's really why people, you know, sit up in their chairs and say, okay, teach me how to do that. Yeah. 
because I don't want to be I don't want to be still thinking and ruminating over something bad that happened that I can't do anything about. Jacqueline, how do you measure the results? So you're working yeah. with these corporations. You've yes. done the eight to ten week program. Yeah. How do you measure it? And then do you follow up? But talk about the measurement. Absolutely. We love measurement. So we do every one of our programs, we always do a pre and post assessment. And we also look in terms of comparing not only uh, in terms of attendance, but also how much people actually practice. Because as I said, the core of the work that we do is going to the mental gym. The tips and things about, you know, not doing the email in the morning or how to be present in meetings, those are really the application. But the core is actually when you go to the mental gym, it rewires the brain. So that's that's really what we look at. Um, and so we have pre and post assessment. In addition to that, we've partnered with researchers. So one of our, we were really uh, grateful to have a researcher from Cambridge University in the UK who did a full, you know, control group, um, full investigation, interviewed not only the people, uh, but also interviewed their supervisors and did a full research analysis of our program. And uh, it was actually a series, he, he five programs um, in different organizations. And what he found was that after, and that was specifically, it was nine weeks, that 10 minutes a day, daily training, plus the one-hour sessions, people were able to increase their focus by 15%, their internal and external awareness by 7%, their emotional exhaustion reduced by 10%. Really? Their job satisfaction, and this was the real cool thing, their job satisfaction increased by 6%. And what was really interesting, and specifically in one of the organizations, was they were going through layoffs. And so they actually came to us, and they actually said, you know what, guys, like, we know you're doing this big research. We don't know if this is a good time, because it's going to be a stressful time for people. And so they were really worried about that, what was happening, that it would negatively impact our results. And we said, well, we went to the researcher, and he said, let's assess it anyway because we've got this all set up. And so it was amazing that people actually, their job satisfaction increased at the same time that the organization was going through major structural changes. Um, and the reason is because, you know, people, one, people felt that the organization was really investing in them, which mm -hmm. was is always a positive thing. But secondly, when you have the ability to be able to be more aware of your thoughts and you have ability to be able to manage them in different ways, really is a game changer and that's that's what that's what we found over and over again and that's why we're so passionate about the work that we do what do you do with the ones that that, that just won't glom onto it you, yeah. you must run into situations and i don't want to linger in this because i want yeah. to talk positive but yeah. there must be those oh, do you just absolutely. ask them to dismiss themselves like is there a certain person that will never get to it I wouldn't necessarily say never, um, but the way that we approach it is, first of all, we never, ever make it mandatory, ever. So it's always optional for people to participate in the courses, for sure. But I would say that what, what our job is as a facilitator is, at least the way that we view it at Potential Project, is that if I can't make it relevant to your work environment, yeah. shame on me. So my job is to come in and find out what are the pain points in your line of work and how can I, how can I, by my understanding of how the mind works and how it can be enhanced through mindfulness training, if I can't make that connection for you, then, you know, then that's, that's not a good fit. 
But what we found, and this is, I think, why it's so interesting is, you know, as I said, I mentioned, you know, working with Google and a lot of people say, yeah, well, they're all hippie flakies anyway. So, of course, it works at Google. Um, Give me another example of a financial institution. Well, I mean, financial institutions, RBC, I was actually going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum just for fun, um, was I got a call uh, a number of years ago and it was actually from Suncor. Mm. And the guy said to me, uh, he said, you know what? I'm working up in Fort Hills, Alberta, which I didn't actually have to look on a map to find out where that was, <laughs> but I knew it was it was a long way far north. I'm going to look later. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and he said, I believe that mindfulness training could help enhance safety on the job because the number one reason why accidents happen is because people aren't paying attention. So can you come and train our guys to be more attentive, to be able to potentially save lives and protect the environment. Come up and do a one-hour introductory workshop. And at the end of it, we'll ask if anybody is interested in going along with it. And he said, no expectations, because it was really, like, we all set the bar pretty low that it might be a pretty big, you know, struggle to get a a bunch of men. Men. How many? the in the room there was uh, there was uh, well there was about 30, 30 guys and actually there was a few women but um pretty uh pretty pretty skeptical i would say in terms of their approach and uh, and my job was to really work to see how i could make it relevant for them and what was amazing is i mean for me that that also made it fun so i asked tons of questions like tell me about your work environment tell me about what you're doing every day tell me about what the things are challenging and then from my understanding and our work and our experience and understanding the nature of the mind going okay that might be a good example do you know that pretty fast when you're in this this se- session yeah. you're asking the questions you're getting the feedback yeah. you're already formulating pretty fast this is a good fit well it really and and especially like if you can make it relevant to people yeah and what was really, really interesting was at the end of the at the end of the hour, um, my my client because it was successful it went forward, uh, stood up and asked the group, and he said, "So you know, all right. So this was just an introduction, and how many people would be willing to sign up for the full program?" And uh, silence. No one was willing to say anything. No way. And um, I was out there, and then finally, and it was hilarious. I'll never forget this. It was a guy who'd been sitting there. He was slouched in his chair. He had his baseball cap on. You couldn't see his eyes, and he was clearly, you know, one of those people, an informal leader within the group. And still, nobody spoke. Nobody spoke. And uh, and then he stood up and he said. I don't know if this training is for me, but I sure want all of you to be taking this course. <laughs> and that was it. And they all and they all signed up. Do you remember some of the situations that you care to share? What what was it about that? Yeah. It's a different work environment, so Very the stresses much. were a little. Well, it was what was really interesting. I mean, there were so many, and. Uh, um, and it was it was so fascinating because a really so a very very specific example would be how our mind actually um, it's very difficult for us to see things with fresh perspectives. It just our mind and it's really quite it's really again quite interesting in terms of the nature of the mind is that when we see something for the first time, like let's say it's a rose, we'll say oh, okay somebody gives us a label that's a rose and we see it and we go oh, okay now I know what that is. The second or the third or the fourth time we see it, what happens in the brain is that for a fraction of a second, our brain will actually register, oh, that's something. But then quickly, and they can show this from fMRI scans, our brain actually pulls up the image 
from our memory. So what we're actually seeing is not what's actually in front of us, but we're actually seeing the image of it. And this is really useful. The brain does that because if we walked around and everything was new, we'd be completely overwhelmed. So it's an efficiency thing. It's an extreme efficiency thing. But what it means is, and this is the fun example that we always use in the class, is that, and I'll ask you this, you know, your wife, Nancy, Mm -hmm. has she ever come home and said to you, Dave, do you notice anything differently about me today? Of course. And you look at her and for the life of you, you can't see anything different. And you're not a bad husband. It's because your brain habituates. You see her as you've always seen her and you go with hair. Because right. it's your best guess. <laughs> and if she says no, <laughs> I strike out. You strike, yeah. right? And so, but this is really important to understand about the, the brain does this because, in a safety context, and it's really interesting, if we habituate to our environment, then it's actually, it makes it more difficult for us to see hazards or, you know, all of these safety signs and these safety posters. If we see them, and they're the same. We don't actually see them anymore because we, we stop paying attention to things that are familiar. And the specific example that the guys used, and it was really amazing, is they looked specifically every time you go on site, you have to do a safety orientation. And what they found was that the guys who were delivering the safety orientation, they had delivered it hundreds of times. So they had they were bored with their own ability to deliver this. And the truth is a lot of the, the people in the training who are coming in, they'd already been at other sites. So their mind is sitting there going, yeah, I know all this. So essentially, you have presenters that aren't really presenting it in a way that's any fresh or interesting. And you've got audience members who are thinking they've seen this all, all before. So it's a mandatory four-hour class where nobody's actually paying attention. And you're saying, how is that useful? So the invitation and what we worked with them was how to actually make sure that we're really engaging people to really truly have beginner's mind and pay attention. And it's just, so so that was just a simple, simple example, but extremely powerful in that context. And in that situation as well, there'd be certain circumstances where they really did need to be on. Yes. So, and I keep coming back, the, the, the one second ahead thing is yeah. just continually ruminating in my mind. Yeah. It's almost slowing down yes, the mind. Exactly. It's, it's exactly what it is. And it's really about having the ability to pause in the moment. And actually, I will take financial services as a great example sure. because we, we do a lot of work with RBC and other financial institutions in Canada, which we love. And with the leaders of what, what level of we uh, work, in the organization? We've done, we've done workshops with all levels, uh, but we do a lot of work with the leaders. Okay. And especially for leaders – that one second ahead is is just so powerful because you know in that one second in that moment you know let's say you're you know you're you're giving feedback to to one of a member of your team and if your mind is going on you know what you know i've i've got a basically we we talk about having a narrative in your head that you know what that person is thinking you know what that you know that person is the same as they've always been then really that your chance of seeing them with fresh eyes, with fresh perspective is, is really, really, really low. So the idea of actually cultivating a beginner's mind so you can see people in situations sometimes, not always because it would be horrible, but sometimes to be able to actually see more of your potential in your team is huge for leaders. 
And it's not easy because it's not the way the brain works. You've got to train it and you've got to set specific intentions that that's important to you. Again, I'm listening. It's an efficiency thing. So I have a team of people. I need to almost box them into particular situations because that's the way I can be efficient in dealing with them. Exactly. But the, the simple example of that is, again, for anybody listening to reflect on, you know, is there somebody that you work with that you know you don't like very much? And you don't think they're very smart. And everybody has somebody that they work with that they have that fixed mindset of. The reality is that at some point, that person is actually going to say something really smart. And I've had people argue with me. They said, no, the person I'm thinking of is never, I'm, trust me, <laughs> it may, you may have to wait a long time. <laughs> but you're going to get one time. One time. And you will miss it. You will miss it because you simply, from a brain perspective, The words will come out of their mouth, but you have such biases that you've put them in that box for efficiency. You're exactly right. It's very efficient. you got to put them in the box. But if you don't cultivate the one second ahead to open up the space that maybe that actually is a good idea, you'll miss it. And the frustration, if I'm working for you, you have me in a box and I'm sitting there going, I think I'm better than the box yeah. because I know you've got me in the box. Absolutely. I think I'm better. I want to be over here. Yeah. And if you open up, yeah. now suddenly strengthens, I suspect, our relationship. It, absolutely. That's the measurement as well. Incredibly so. Exactly. A difference between, are you doing work with, uh, you mentioned men, are you doing work with groups of women? And what's the difference between, if there is a difference? In, yeah. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Um we, so we work with all groups and, uh, and all, uh, all uh, very diverse groups. Um, I particular have had the opportunity to work uh, specifically actually with RBC with a women's leadership group. And what's really interesting, the reason why RBC, so I just, RBC has looked at their numbers at the top of the house and actually throughout the house. And they just realized like many companies, they're just simply, they're, they haven't even, though they've set targets and they've had all kinds of initiatives, they just haven't been able to reach the targets in terms of diversity that they would like to have within their levels. And so they've initiated this high potential women leader program. And, uh, and we've had the opportunity, it's an amazing privilege to be able to work with them. And so a potential project, we've had the opportunity to facilitate this program. And what's interesting about it, the first thing I think that's interesting about it is that the women always ask, okay, so, you know, is this a women's program? And I say, no, this is a leadership program. Everything that we are going to share with you and talk to you about is exactly the same as we would do with any other group of leaders, except for one thing, which is really looking at unconscious biases. Because what we know from a brain perspective is that even if, and I'll even take my own example, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household. My mother always worked. You know, both my parents worked. I was always encouraged to, I could be whatever I wanted to be. When I was a little kid, I remember I came home from school after the nurse, you know, fixed uh, a bruised knee. And I said to my mom, I want to be a nurse. And she said, why don't you want to be a doctor? Like I was always encouraged. And yet there's a really interesting test that you can take online, the IIT test, the Harvard. I don't know if you've seen it. No. But it basically shows how even if we operate in ways that we think we're not driven by biases, we are. And specifically in that case where you take this test and you realize that just for societal training, unbeknownst to us from a conscious level, subconsciously, even I failed this test where I associated women more with family and men more with work and professional. 
And these things are important to understand because, again, they drive our behaviors in completely unconscious ways that we're not even aware of. And so that's one of the things that looking at that is a really interesting insight, not only for the women in the program, but actually also for the bank overall, in terms of how to overcome these unconscious biases. And again, the one second ahead, managing the mind, is the way to be able to tap into a greater level of awareness about, okay, wait a minute, you know, what's driving my behavior right now? What's actually, yeah. So the training you're doing is pretty interesting. It's not only getting, it's that 10 minute a day yep. to open the mind up to get the one second. Yep. But then you also put on top of that a number of, how do I word this? I mean, it's leadership skills. Absolutely. So it's more, I mean, it's it's getting the person prepared for the leadership situation. So you're, you're mindfulness, but... But you've expanded. Exactly. Very interesting. Well, and that's really what I would say. So there's many, many, many organizations and groups. You can take mindfulness training many places now. It's become very popular. But our specific passion is bringing it into workplaces and making it relevant. And so for the leadership journey, so it's a, for all of our leadership programs, it's a a six-step process. And it starts with, if you actually want to be an effective leader, the first place you have to start is understanding the nature of your own mind. So the first place is self-awareness and it's understanding things like your mind wanders. Mm -hmm. You're not as efficient as you think you you are. You actually have unconscious biases that are driving your behavior and you are not as rational as you think you are. And I can do all of these with simple exercises and I don't make it as blunt as that, but it's really welcome to your mind. That's step number one. Step number two is... How can I manage my mind better just to be able to perform more effectively as a leader? So things like, okay, you know, do you multitask? That's a really bad idea. All the research says don't multitask. It's a horrible waste of time and makes us more efficient and less effective and we make more mistakes. So the second step for leaders is to say, okay, how can I be more efficient and effective with my time? So self-leadership is step two. Step three, then, is people awareness. How can I actually better understand the minds of others? And it's, again, what's really interesting from a mind perspective is we don't see other people as they are. We actually see them as we are. And this is, again, really important for leaders to understand. So we see other people through our lens, through our glasses. So you know, it's just that that's important to understand. Did, did, was this always the mission of, of the Potential Project to take it to that? Because I, again, I read the book. Yeah. The book took me to where we started and where we sort yep. of gotten to here. Yep. I didn't get the leadership part. Is there another book coming? We are. We're working right now on our second book and uh, we're really excited about it. So we've partnered Harvard, um, Harvard's Press is publishing our book, and it'll come out in March 2018. And uh, they're just an amazing partner because they um, they they only publish 25 books a year, and so they they're very much uh, partnering with us, which is which is which is great because they're really looking at every detail and you know really looking to back it up by research and the science, but also bringing in insights that'll be able to to support the leadership journey. So maybe I'll just finish just the yeah. leadership journey. So the steps. So it starts with self awareness to self leadership, people awareness to people leadership, org awareness to org leadership. So those are the six steps. And do you find, are you finding there are natural leaders? Are there born leaders? Yes. Are there leaders that, that also, can you, can you um, 
develop leaderships, yeah. leadership skills? Where does it sit on the grid or is it all over the map? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's really amazing is that, so one of the other things that we're, that is a premise of the book is that, that mindfulness, compassion, and selflessness mm. are foundational core qualities for effective leaders. Give it to me again, mindfulness, compassion. And selflessness. So basically, and, and mindfulness basically meaning I can be focused and I can be aware, so simple. So I'm here and I know what I'm thinking. So I'm present Got in it. the moment. That's compassion. the mindfulness. Compassion is having an intention to be of benefit to others. Simple, again, just wanting to be of benefit to others. And selflessness is getting myself, it's not, it's not about me. And getting my own ego, letting go of my own ego, and just getting out of my own way. Because most of the time when we do things that are trying to protect our own ego are really just self-serving, we're really not then able to act in ways that'll be helpful to other people and to our organization. So our premise is that those three qualities, we believe, are what actually is critical, not only for leadership at any time, but particularly in today's day and age, where we're inundated with distractions, where many, we know the disengagement scores are, are increasingly high. People don't feel connected at work. And, and thirdly, there's a, there's a lack of, of, of people feeling like their jobs have meaning. They don't feel like they don't have the same sense of purpose. And so we believe that those three qualities can help people overcome. If leaders have those qualities, then, then they can bring to their organization a greater sense of organizational discipline and focus, a greater sense of caring and compassion, and a greater sense of purpose and meaning. And is your work proving that out? Are the good leaders, do the yeah. good leaders have those qualities? Yeah. And so what's been really amazing wow. is that we've interviewed hundreds of leaders and surveyed even more. And we have found that, and it's really to your point, we've interviewed leaders that, that have mindfulness training. Um, and we've also interviewed many leaders that, that are just recognized in their organizations as be, just being wonderful leaders. And what you said earlier, we all, like, what's, I think what's really amazing about this is that when we start getting into the, the training, this isn't something that, you know, I'm, I can do and you can't. We all have this ability to tap into an understanding of our own mind and manage it. It's just a matter of whether we choose to, whether that's important to us. And what we find is many people have come to these insights without having the training. So many leaders, when some of the great leaders that we've interviewed are just naturally, they, they naturally want to be of service to their people. It's obvious to them because they know that if they're all about them, they're screwed. So they know intuitively. So they haven't necessarily had to do the training to be able to come to that insight. But what we do know is that through the training, you can actually enhance that. So most of the senior leaders that we work with, they're also there. As I said earlier, they're focused. I mean, they're really like, you don't get to be, you know, the CEO, one of the one of the CEOs we just interviewed was uh, the CEO for, for Marriott. You don't get to be the CEO of the largest hotel chain in the globe without being pretty focused and pretty disciplined about your mind. Um, but with training, you can actually enhance it. So, South of the border. Yes. You could look at the political situation now and say that the qualities that you just spoke of yes. probably aren't um, in the leader of the United States. What's happened as a result of what is going on in the U.S., mm -hmm. as an example, around the conversation? Is this been good for business? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. What we're seeing with a lot of our clients in the U.S. is that, you know, they're asking themselves, well, and, and one of the things that's very interesting is, you know, it is such a political landscape in terms of a, a political minefield, I was yes. going to say. And, you know, companies, do they come out, you know, in favor? Do they come out against? How does it affect their business? So, you know, we're working with a very large um, audit and tax company, and they're saying, you know, if the, all of the tax laws start changing, this could actually be good for us because we'll have to, you know, we'll have lots of business to try to help companies. And yet at the same time, of course, there, there's also, I think, um, a concern about, you know, greater disengagement, greater disenfranchisement. How does this affect? And stress levels have increased significantly in the U.S. Um, you know, people just feeling like, Unsettled. There's a, a tremendous amount of unsettledness going on right now. And hence, is the conversation is more active the as a result? The conversation is more active. And I think that, I guess what we really see right now is that the the environment is, I think, it's so polarized in the U.S. And I think that because of that, it's creating the space for some really interesting conversations. So, for example, because of you know, how some people perceive the leader to be. When we come in and talk and we, we ask leaders, like, do you think, and, and, you know, of course we have set ideas, but we say, do you think compassion is important to you as a leader? And tell me why. And then we listen and we hear the stories and that, you know, overwhelmingly the stories are, yeah, you know what? That's really important to me as a leader because I know that when people, when, when, when people feel that they're cared for and they feel that they're valued, they actually, they, they're more loyal, they stay, you know, they stay longer, they work harder. And not only that, they actually can realize more of their potential, which is a good thing. Jacqueline, I, you're so passionate about this. Yes. And I know you, you probably aren't comfortable in speaking or talking about you, but I need to know, <laughs> was there not an aha moment in your life? What brought you to the work that you're doing now that you're clearly so passionate about. Yeah, well, my, so my simple journey, I suppose, is that I've always been just very curious about the nature of my mind, other people's mind. I think human behavior is the most fascinating thing. I started, actually, I went to the University of Toronto, my first, my undergraduate degree. I started in math and physics and just, again, just from a very scientific perspective. And I was always drawn to, to studies and research about mindfulness. It was always something that, for me, um, was just really interesting in terms of understanding the nature of our own thoughts. And I worked with Deloitte Consulting for many years here in Canada and the U.S. and also in Australia. And when I was thrown into a high-pressure, very intense consulting environment, for me, the mindfulness practice was what not only kept me sane, <laughs> um, but it also, for me, it helped me thrive and be really successful. Because, you know, in the moment where, you know, the client would say, why are you saying that? Instead of going into fight-flight mode, which is something the brain naturally does, I could just take a breath and say, okay, you know, I'm just going to take that one second pause and think of, instead of reacting, how I want to respond to the situation. But at that time, and this was now 20 years ago, nobody was talking about mindfulness in a corporate environment. So I kept it completely to myself. And I never told anybody at work that my secret survival mechanism was mindfulness training. And, you know, I remember in particular, I was in working in Australia, one of my clients when I was with Deloitte was the Australian Department of Defense. And like the last thing that I was going to tell a bunch of Aussie blokes with guns <laughs> was that 
in my spare time, I like to sit and count my breaths, one to 10, 10 to one, you know, that was just never going to happen. A, B, C, D. Um, but what was really interesting, and so you asked about what was my my moment. Um, so I was just really happy to be, I, I called myself a closet meditator. And what happened to me, and this was actually, uh, now I guess uh, seven years ago, I was actually working a big, uh, a big program at a very large, one of the largest Canadian universities. And I was program director and there was process change, system change, people layoffs, everything, lots of, lots of things going on. And I was overseeing this multi-million dollar program. And it was complicated as many of our work lives are. And again, for me, the mindfulness training was key, you know, keeping it all in perspective, you know, being able to stay calm, stay focused, stay clear minded. And what happened actually was I was supporting my client um, and he stood up in front of a room full of 300 people to announce some really tough changes that were coming. And he started to do his presentation that I had prepped him for and prepared and he passed out. And of course, everybody was, you know, what happened? What's wrong? And, um, you know, after the, uh, the test came in and what we all knew and nobody would say, so they didn't find anything wrong with him. And what we all knew, but nobody would say was that he was overworked. He was way too stressed and he wasn't taking care of his body. And I knew he wasn't taking care of his mind because this is a university. Nobody was going to die. I mean, it wasn't easy, but nobody was going to die if these changes didn't take place. And yet for him, it was affecting, it was seriously affecting his health. And at that moment, and it was really that moment that I felt so ashamed of myself that I had had these tools that in a lot of ways were so simple, simple as ABCD. And yet, because of my own ego, I was afraid to share them with anybody. And I, so at that point, I made this commitment that I was going to do, if anybody would listen, and I, again, this was seven years ago before mindfulness was popular. Seven years ago? Seven years ago today. Today, okay. That if anybody was going to listen, I was going to try to bring mindfulness into corporate environments so that nobody had to stand up in front of a group full of people and pass out again. Good on you. That was it. Um, but the interesting part of that story is that uh, I was still too chicken to do it in Canada <laughs> because, you know, I'd built up a reputation of being and not a hard-nosed consultant, but a successful business-focused consultant using business language and talking about performance outcomes and benefits and mindfulness just didn't roll off my tongue in the context, in a business context. And so through an opportunity um, from a family opportunity, uh, I had the opportunity to go and move to Singapore. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to reinvent myself uh, specifically to bring mindfulness into organizations, Singapore sounded like a great place to do it. It's safe. Nobody knows you. Nobody knew me. Exactly. You weren't the hard nosed. Exactly. Exactly. But I still, I still remember to this day, I was sitting my first business development opportunity. I was sitting lovely room, very, you know, beautiful windows overlooking and it was Singapore. It was gorgeous. And I had the opportunity to meet with the CHRO of Siemens in Singapore. And after the niceties and just talking about, you know, the business and all the kind of typical things you do. And he said, so tell me about this mindfulness stuff. And I remember just choking up and I was like, I just like, it was so hard for me to talk about. We didn't end up getting that client (laughs) because it was still like finding the words to say, 
why this is relevant. So when you talked earlier about, you know, this potential project, did we always do this? You know, it was hard because we were we knew that there was benefit. But what we have worked and we've have the scars on our back to prove it is, you know, continually challenge challenging ourselves to make it real, relevant and practical in a business context. And our success rate now, like we have many failure stories from when we started. Um, we had many skeptics that sat there and we never went over because we couldn't make it relevant for them. And that's why our mission is to be able to continually strive towards making it relevant for and people. And I know you're an international company. Yeah. But as Canada Crush, I just need to know, how's Canada doing in this whole area of mindfulness? Yeah, it's amazing, actually. And uh, I mean, we have, I said, you know, privilege of being able to work with some of the, well, with a number of the largest banks in Canada, uh, a number of the consulting firms, um, as well, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Suncor. Um, We're actually working, it's, uh, we have a great project right now. We're working with a couple of life insurance companies. We're also working with, uh, with a Canadian branch of EA Sports, which is a really interesting environment for mindfulness because of the kind of environments that they have. But it's great. We found that there's a tremendous amount of receptivity. I think Canadians in general are are very are very open. Um, and again, we come with, um, you know, we, we we've worked with, you know, I mean, we're working with Accenture, we're working with, um, you know, with Google, with with Lego, with IKEA. We're working with big name brands, and so because of that, people and RBC and CIBC and other Canadian, uh, very wonderful Canadian organizations. But because of that, people are willing to give it a try. And again, we can make it relevant. There's a good match. There was a great quote in the book. I think it was a look back directed to the future, but done in the present. Exactly. But I have a question for you in the future. Okay. (laughs) What do you see for, let's say, the next 10 years for the whole field of mindfulness? Where, what are your dreams? Yeah, that's a great question. And for us... We do believe that mindfulness is kind of having its day in the sun right now. It's becoming, and a lot of it is because the neuroscience, and that's why we love all the scientific research that's backing up these claims. I mean, mindfulness has been around for thousands of years, but now the scientists are actually able to look at, as I mentioned, fMRI scans that actually can validate what, if you actually sit and do mindfulness training, the scientists can actually validate your experience from a, from a very scientific perspective. What we see as the next frontier, and that's why our next book is focused on this, is actually compassion. And uh-huh. and that's something that we really believe that, you know, because, you know, a lot of times compassion is seen as being weak. You know, does compassion mean that, you know, I'm not going to give you the feedback because I don't want to be mean? And our form of compassion is like, actually, the most compassionate thing you can do to somebody is actually give them the performance feedback so they can change. And so looking at, again, for us, our, our mission is how to bring compassion into a corporate environment to be able to make it actually a foundational core strength. And again, the science is really backing that up in terms of that being a real cornerstone of not only human flourishing, but business flourishing. One of my favorite and almost final questions I always love to know for successful people like yourself is, is there any special philosophy on how you lead your life that you'd like to share with other Canada Crush listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, I think that um, one of the things that for me, I believe in this so strongly because I'm also studying it. And I think that one of the things that we know is that we are really good at being critical of ourselves. 
And I think for me, one of the things that my mindfulness training has really helped me is to be kind to myself. And for me, it means that I'm willing to take more risks. It means that I don't beat myself up when I fall down. And that, to me, is, is just opens up uh, such a greater range of possibilities in terms of who I can be. I think that's one of the other things that I love about when you understand the nature of the mind is the beautiful thing is our brains are constantly changing. So who we are today is not who we have to be tomorrow. And so if we want to be intentional about shaping our lives, we can actually rewire our brain to be able to be truly different in terms of how we process the world around us. And so for me, one of the things that, and that's why we call it Potential Project, because it really is about continuing to expand your own potential. And that would be something I I hope everybody reaches out and tries to do. Fascinating work. The book, One Second Ahead, is yes. available for people that want to get it. it Amazon? Is, it is available Amazon as well as chapters um, online. And uh, yeah, I mean... Readily available. Readily available. Absolutely. Fascinating work. Incredible conversation. A great Canadian. I, Again, I always say I can't thank you enough for spending the time today. And I know this has been a wonderful learning for me and I... Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the time. It's been a lot of fun. 